The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks looking to get back on track after the market's win streak sputters. Futures are higher this morning. Shares of Twitter also on the rise this morning following strong earnings, but the tech giant is talking about some mounting headwinds on the cost side. Robinhood's CEO speaking out, defending high-speed traders and their role in the markets amid the recent short squeeze friendly frenzy. And then Bitcoin's rally, finding some new fuel amid Tesla's recent backing as investors search for what could carry the crypto to the next big mark, maybe even 50,000 or beyond. And Salesforce becoming the latest major company to embrace the work from anywhere mantra in this virus pandemic era. It's Wednesday, February 10th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. And here is how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Stock futures looking to get back on track, like we just said. This after you can see here, the S&P up by about 13 points implied, 100 point gain for the Dow roughly at the opening bell and the Nasdaq gaining by about 65 points. This is all after the Dow and the S&P snapped their six day winning streak dipping just ever so slightly. The Nasdaq sneaking out to a gain thanks to Facebook, Microsoft, and Netflix shares. And you can see there, over the course of the at least time period for yesterday, just very, very marginal gains, but still the win streak is snapped. A pair of stocks to watch in the trading day today ahead, including Twitter. Those shares climbing following better than expected fourth quarter results, but the company failing to meet Wall Street's user growth expectations and warning that figure could slow down as well. Twitter shares, though, nonetheless up almost 4% in the extended hours trade. Also watching shares of Lyft. Fourth quarter results beating on the top and bottom lines, while active rider numbers did miss expectations. Lyft reporting signs business is recovering slightly from the virus pandemic. As a result, those shares up a whopping 12% in the pre-market trade. Let's now go worldwide. We've got shares in Asia ending the day in the green, as you can see there, with the Shanghai jumping nearly 1.5% and the Hang Seng in Hong Kong climbing nearly 2%. The Nikkei in Japan, by the way, hits a new 30-year high, so very green across the screen. Let's spin that globe around and check out what's happening in Europe right now. It's a bit more of a mixed but muted session. The German DAX, we'll call it just, just about flat, same with the CAC in France, and the FTSE 100 in the U.K. up about one-quarter of 1%. Now to this morning's top stories, including Robin Hood's CEO speaking out about the recent controversy surrounding his platform. Frank Holland has more on that in this morning's other top headlines. Good morning, Frank. Hey, good morning to you, Dom. In a new blog post, Vlad Tenev is defending the role that high-speed traders play in the market. In that post, Tenev says that a crucial problem is that many investors, they just don't understand the quote-unquote plumbing of how the financial markets work, including what high-frequency traders do. The post comes after Robinhood's decision to halt the purchase of stocks at the center of the short-squeeze frenzy last month. 
Huawei has filed a lawsuit in the U.S. disputing its label as a national security threat by the FCC last year. The Chinese company is asking for an appeals court to review that ruling, which blocked U.S. telecom operators from accessing a multi-billion dollar fund to buy Huawei products. The move, the move marks the latest legal challenge by Huawei, despite the Biden administration taking hold last month. And Salesforce is the latest major company to embrace the permanent shift to the work-from-home lifestyle. The company announcing it will offer employees three different ways to work from home moving forward. That includes working remotely and coming into the office up to three days a week. Dom, back over to you. All right, Frank, you thank you very much for that. Back to the markets now. As we look to get back on track after snapping a multi-day winning streak. For more now, I am joined by Delano Saporu, founder and financial advisor at New Street Advisors. Delano, it's a, yes, a snap to a win streak, but it's not all that dramatic. We are still right near record highs right now. Do you feel as though you can still be bullish given what we've seen in markets over the course of the past week? Hi, Dom. Good morning to you. Yes, I still do. And I think, you know, the markets, investors are pretty optimistic. We're seeing positive news across the board. Um, vaccine rollout is getting better. Uh, we're seeing uh, optimism with, with, with our back, getting back to normal with, you know, indoor dining, especially in New York, uh, coming back to, to fruition now. Um, and there's a lot of things that investors are optimistic about. Uh, but the tech-enabled tech companies and the big cap and, and, and growth companies are, are still performing strong. And we're still seeing that performance across the board, as you mentioned earlier in the, earlier in the show. All right. So if we take a look at the way that markets are shaping up right now, so far this year and so far for the last few months, we've seen what I would call the kind of covid recovery trade. Right. The energy sector is going gangbusters right now. Fuel prices are on the rise. People are expecting people to travel more, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, you've got defensive sectors, consumer staples companies. They're some of the worst performers out there. Does that trend continue? Do we see a rotation kind of back into this idea that things get back to normal? Yeah, I've yeah, we've talked about. It. I think I think you see some of that. Um, so we are hedging when it comes to having that going back to normal play, especially with travel and leisure. But I still think the tech enable story and some of the big growth story will still continue because um, that, as you mentioned with Salesforce, that's still going to that that story and that trend uh, work from anywhere. It's still going to happen. So I think you still see a mix of both. So you want to make make sure you're well diversified in that in that situation. How exactly then do you diversify yourself in this kind of environment? What exactly are you putting on the shopping list for your clients as a financial advisor? So that's a great question. So when it comes to, you know, the, the stay at home play, uh, we're still in the companies that we believe in the story that passed, you know, just this pandemic uh, that, we're, that we're going through. So we're in the stories that we believe are going to continue to perform well uh, when it comes to, you know, well positioned as far as management to make sure that their company is performing well past this. Um, so you obviously mentioned some of the big, uh, big firms, whether it's CRM um, and, and some of the firms that are well positioned. Zoom, I still believe, has, is a company that's going to be well positioned past this. Uh, but you also want to have exposure to the other areas. So if you're not well positioned there, you want to make sure you play in, a play in a diversified play, but it's an ETF that's covering those grounds. Okay. So, so then are there things right now that worry you? Are there things right now besides the, the, the fact that the virus could flare up again in, in a certain way, that there are new variants out there? What exactly then would derail things that are going right right now in the market? 
That's a great question. I would think a couple things. I would think one, continue speculation. You want to make sure if you're someone that's more trading and speculating that you're, you're, you're well positioned, you're covered in that situation. That would be the, one of the bigger worries if, if the speculation continues. Um, there's more frenzy where, you know, things are just, you know, not able to be really, really patterned out. And that would be the biggest, biggest worry. There's a lot of optimism, but I think a lot of it is well, is well deserved. Uh, but if investors, if we're seeing a lot more speculation, that would be something that would probably bring more worry. There have been a lot of new trends developing right now, at least in the near to medium term, with regard to asset classes. Some of financial advisors and investors would consider alternative. I think of things like cannabis. I think of things like cryptocurrency. I think of these short squeeze type stocks that have been so volatile as of late. Have you changed any of your asset allocations for clients to even take any small exposure to any of these kind of emerging, if you will, type asset classes? Yeah, great question, Dom. And we have. And we're waiting for, you know, some of the institutions that are our custodian to allow, you know, advisors to hopefully custody that for clients. But yes, and clients are calling me and asking a lot more about cryptocurrency. And that's something that a lot of people have been super interested, in, especially, you know, the younger clients wanting to understand what's going on. There's so many trends in that area that are super interesting. And we are telling clients, yes, you should have exposure to cryptocurrency based on your research and based on understanding it and make sure that it's up to your for your risk tolerance because you mentioned uh it's something that's going to be very volatile going forward so if your risk tolerance isn't up to par for that you want to make sure your exposure is a lot lower and you first understand the assets of the digital currency uh but yes we want clients to be exposed to it because we one we understand it's, it's a digital store value it's something that's going to have a lot more use cases and going to have more adoption going forward you're seeing bigger institutions starting to warm up to it so that's something that we are saying a client should have exposure to volatile to the up and the downside there for sure delano sapporo new street thank you very much sir we we appreciate it. Thank you, Don. Now to Washington, D.C., where day two of former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial is set to get underway after Democrats and Trump's legal team made their opening arguments in those proceedings. Tracy Potts joins us now from Washington, D.C., with more on the latest there. Tracy. Hi, Dom. Good morning, everyone. So they'll actually start in earnest presenting the case today. The House managers, the Democrats go first up to 16 hours, couple of days to lay out what they call cold, hard facts, focusing not only on the speech that former President Trump gave right before the riot on January 6th. They will also argue that he spent weeks laying the groundwork for that attack. This afternoon, House managers begin laying out their case against former President Trump after starting Monday's debate with an emotional video aiming to connect Mr. Trump to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there is no such thing. The lead impeachment manager recalling his daughter was there that day. She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. (laughs) Trump's defense calling Democrats overly dramatic. They don't need to show you movies to show you that the riot happened here. But effective. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. Most Republicans backed the defense. President Trump's um, attorneys made a pretty strong case for dismissal. But one Trump attorney admitted last night his colleague seemed disorganized. Today he hadn't planned on going, and uh, so I'm sure that they'll be very well prepared in the future. In the end, six Republicans agreed it is constitutional to try a former president. They made a compelling argument. But will 11 more vote to convict? Presidents can't 
inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. We shall stand in adjournment until noon tomorrow. It's an uphill battle with the Trump defense arguing this entire trial is political. So here is what you can expect starting today, at least eight hours of arguments a day that gives each side a couple of days to present their case. So the defense likely to start on Friday and then senators get to ask questions. There's some technical things that they have to deal with in the interim. We still don't know if they'll vote on witnesses or if there'll be a request for those. So, Dom, it's looking like this could stretch into early next week. NBC's Tracy Potts with the latest there on the impeachment trial. Thank you very much for that. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a look at some of the stock sectors, asset classes you need to keep an eye on this morning. First of all, in the previous segment with Delano Sapporo, we mentioned some of the emerging asset classes. One of them was cannabis. This is the ETF MG Alternative Harvest ETF. The ticker here is MJ. You can see in the extended hours trade, it's up 9%. The reason why we want to highlight this is because one of the recent themes over the course of the last few months here has been a massive surge in cannabis-related investments, especially publicly traded ones. This particular ETF at the pandemic lows was a hair below $9 per unit or per share, meaning at current prices we are now up roughly 225% in that time span since the pandemic lows of last year. Cannabis, a red-hot theme right now. It probably can't maintain this kind of upward momentum, but still something to watch. Maybe a pullback coming sometime soon. Next up, check out what's happening with platinum prices. We've been talking about gold a lot, but platinum and platinum group metals like platinum and palladium have been surging as of late as well. You can see here over the course of just the past couple of years, we've seen a move higher. Platinum prices now, by the way, if you go back all the way, it's the highest prices since about 2015. So platinum and platinum group metals, another asset class to watch. And then the digital side of things. We mentioned Bitcoin before. Bitcoin prices did hit a record high in just the last couple of days. But remember, at the pandemic lows, Bitcoin prices, depending on which platform you want to look at, were roughly $4,000 per token or thereabouts, meaning net at $47,000 per token. It's been a massive move higher in those prices. But again, some concerns about whether that kind of momentum to the upside can continue without some kind of arrest. For more on the rise in Bitcoin, I'm now joined by Robert Hackett, senior writer for Fortune magazine. Robert The chart was staggering. I'm just curious about whether or not there's any kind of a fundamental justification 
for the kinds of price movements we've been seeing, is there a use case building for cryptocurrencies in general? There is a use case building. Uh, And the thesis that has taken hold right now is this idea that Bitcoin is a sort of digital gold. It's this scarce resource that governments can't mess with. Uh, Right now, central banks are printing lots and lots of money to counter the ill effects of the pandemic. Uh, And Bitcoin, people are looking to as something that is outside of that world that central bankers can't tamper with. If, If that is the case... What exactly then do people look at with regard to putting a price tag on it? How much of it is out there? You mentioned the scarcity value. What's driving the pricing dynamic right now? How do people know how much they should be paying? For stocks, you can use things like discounted cash flow analysis, dividend discount models, ways to kind of forecast out and discount back future flows. It is not the case with cryptocurrencies. How then do you drive value for that? There's a bit of alchemy involved, and people are still trying to figure that out, to be completely honest. But there are analysts at big investment banks who have started to to begin to actually put their own price points on it. Uh, You know, analysts at JPMorgan Chase, they've said that they think the price could be $100,000 per Bitcoin in the long term, which is actually still a far way to go from where we are right now, even though it might seem like Bitcoin is so high already. Uh, And one thing that people are factoring in is, If you look at the gold market, that is a multi-trillion dollar market. And if Bitcoin can eat into that a little bit or just grow in that same alternative asset space, uh, it could justify itself at being a higher price. Within the last three or four years, you know, even here at this network, we we kind of have talked to people, business owners, uh, those people who are crypto enthusiasts about actually using Bitcoin to transact. Is there a possibility right now that we do see a resurgence in, say, real estate developers who will take Bitcoin in payment for real estate or or a bodega owner who will then take Bitcoin for that soda or or breakfast sandwich that they're going to get on the street? How exactly then does the use case drive the, the next round of valuing Bitcoin? So that's a great question. Bitcoin itself, it's it's got a payment system involved, but it's not very good compared to what we are used to, you know, like the Visa network, being able to just sort of spend money on a credit card that is way cheaper, faster, simpler than the clunky and expensive uh, uh, system that Bitcoin is. Uh, but there has been this division in the in the cryptocurrency world where actually you've got these stable coins, which are designed to maintain a fixed price. uh, And those are actually making a lot more headway in terms of payments. Um, That being said, down the line, Bitcoin, maybe it can be a better uh, a better system. You know, it's software. It can improve over time. It's technology. It's always progressing. Um, And you've got people like Elon Musk and Tesla now saying that they're going to allow you to buy uh, vehicles with Bitcoin. Um, So they're expecting down the line that it is going to be a better payment system. Robert, can you take us through what the major differences are between the Ethereum ecosystem and the Bitcoin ecosystem? I've had some cryptocurrency industry folks tell me that that Ether and Ethereum could actually be a better way to conduct certain types of businesses and transactions. Take us through the main differences there. That's absolutely right. So Bitcoin, it's beginning to get this sort of reputation as an a reserve asset class. It's sort of where you might want to park your money and it will store your value. Now, that might seem crazy because of all the wild price swings, but but, hey, you know, the markets are crazy themselves these days. So Bitcoin seems uh, a lot less crazy than anything else going on. 
Um, whereas Ethereum, there is a ton of interesting activity going on right now, and it's kind of flying under the radar, um, even though Ethereum is hitting all-time highs recently. Uh, and what's really interesting in that universe is something called decentralized finance. You've basically got these open source coding projects that are developing all of these sorts of tools, these Lego building uh, blocks that are basically reconstructing the plumbing of Wall Street, uh, except without having a big bank involved. Instead, you are just putting it all on software or on the blockchain, as people say. All right. So a big move there. Ether and Bitcoin prices both hitting right near record highs right now. Robert Hackett of Fortune, thank you very much for that, sir. We appreciate it. Still on deck for the show. The crunch China's chip sector is facing right now and how it plans to become more self-reliant. We have a live report from Beijing coming up. But first, February is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors. As we head out to break, here is CNBC contributor James McDonald with his advice for the next generation. The most important advice I could give the next generation of black Americans is look at the success as example that's before you. We've been a president of the United States. We've excelled in some of the largest financial institutions, and we've generated billions in those areas of finance that are the most complex. You can do it too. Go after what you want and be all that you can be. Hi. I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Johnson & Johnson is looking to get the thumbs up from the FDA for its COVID-19 vaccine. Our own Meg Terrell spoke with CEO Alex Gorski yesterday at our Healthy Returns Spotlight, and he expressed his confidence in delivering to the public. We remain extremely confident that we'll meet our commitments in terms of the United States uh, and providing 100 million doses uh, by June of, uh, of this year. And uh, and again, we're uh, we're working around the clock to make that happen. All right. healthcare executives making news at that conference. Don't forget now to join us on May 11th for our next Healthy Returns Summit. Learn more. Register at CNBCEvents.com. You can check out that particular bit of information there. Well, still ahead on the show, shares of Twitter are on the rise as the tech giant warns of slower user growth ahead. We're going to dive into those results and how the company can overcome its looming obstacles. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. Bounce back. Futures pointing toward a higher open this morning after Snock staffed a six-day winning streak. Chip crunch, a number of companies warning of the most severe shortage of semiconductors in years. Plus, why you might want to rethink plans for that new deck. The story behind the more than 100% run-up in lumber prices just so far this year. It's Wednesday, February 10th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC.
Here is how your money and investments are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. As we mentioned before, stocks pointing towards a higher open with the Dow implied higher by roughly 85 points. The S&P implied higher by roughly 12 points at the opening bell and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 61 points. One stock to watch this morning, Cisco Systems. Those shares trading lower after the company's second quarter results showed continued struggles in its top product segment, which is infrastructure platforms. Still, though, Cisco beat on the top and bottom lines and guidance also exceeded analyst estimates. Those shares down roughly four and a half percent in the pre-market. Cisco's CEO will have more on the results when he joins CNBC exclusively at 9 a.m. Eastern time. We're already seeing Jim Cramer tweeting about it. The questions you want him to ask, everything else. Chuck Robbins coming up 9 a.m. Squawk on the Street, a must watch interview there. Now to some of this morning's other top corporate headlines. Frank Holland is back with some of those. Good morning, Frank. Hey, good morning again, Don. We begin with some M&A news. SoftBank is making a $900 million investment in gene sequencing company Pacific Biosciences. The Japanese conglomerate already had a 6% stake in that California-based company. The buzz continued to build around the prospects for an Apple-branded car. A new report filed with the California Department of Motor Vehicles shows the tech giant more than doubled road testing of its self-driving vehicles just last year. And data on how many times a human driver had to take over, it suggests that the technology is improving. And speaking of cars, an electric vehicle startup backed by Amazon and Ford is reportedly looking to go public later on this year. Bloomberg says Rivian Automotive could IPO with a valuation of $50 billion or possibly even more. Dom, back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Frank Holland, for those headlines. We've been hearing a number of companies in recent weeks mention chip shortages. There are a number of reasons for that, and it's a topic we're going to dive into all day long on CNBC. We're going to start in Beijing with Eunice Yoon. So, Eunice, you are looking at U.S. restrictions on chip sales to China and why Beijing is more determined than ever to develop its own semiconductor industry. Eunice. That's right, Dom. You know, Beijing has always had uh, a very ambitious plans to try to build up a homegrown chip industry. But the U.S. clampdown, per- in particular on Huawei Technologies, really served as a wake-up call for Chinese tech and also as a stimulus to build up the entire industry, which, as you all know, is seen as a very critical one to power all sorts of other types of gadgets. So Beijing has made chips a priority in its next five-year plan, which is going to be unveiled in March. The tech independence part is one of five fundamentals of the Chinese say of economic development. And then the aim is to have 70 percent domestic production of chips by 2025. So that's versus 30 percent at the moment. So China has also um, committed to investment and spending. They've already um, offered up tax breaks of 10-year exemptions and duty-free imports for companies that are looking into pushing into chip technology. Uh, They're encouraging listings very aggressively, prioritizing them, especially for the Shanghai market. And then uh, for state funds, state funds have been um, looking at new startups and there are a lot of companies, uh, Dom, that I think are jumping in and hearing this nationalist's call. And that's one of the, the ways that this is different from the push that we've seen in the past by the Chinese government, that it's not only state companies that are trying to get in. It's a lot of private companies as well. So, so Eunice, I, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, I, I've done some coverage over the years with regard to the supercomputing industry and, and tech, technological stories with regard to that. We know currently that the U.S. and China 
pretty much have a duopoly on supercomputing superiority in the world. They jockey back and forth between who has the fastest one. Is that the, the type of blueprint that we could see with regard to technology competition between the U.S. and China? What's happening with supercomputing? It's going to carry over and now it's going to happen with semiconductors as well. Yeah, I think that that would be the blueprint. But at least in semiconductors, China is still very far behind. I mean, when you look at which companies are actually doing well or that people outside of China know about, probably the only one that most people know is SMIC, which is in memory chip technology. And in fact, it's at least four or five years behind the leader in the field, a TSMC from Taiwan. So um, there, you know, the other, there are other companies, including Huawei, that are trying to move aggressively into more advanced types of chips. But a very few have made much progress at all to be able to compete internationally, though, of course, that is the hope that they would be able to sell, which they do to a lot of the Chinese companies, big market and eventually hit global. All right. Yunus Yun live from Beijing with the next frontier in technology battles between the U.S. and China. That is semiconductors. Thank you very much for that. Well, from hardware to software, Twitter's fourth quarter earnings and sales beating forecasts as ad revenues jumped 31 percent. User growth rose 27 percent. But believe it or not, that was shy of analyst estimates. And the company warns that the re- that rate will slow as a boost from the pandemic starts to fizzle out a bit. Twitter says it gained more daily users in January. It normally doesn't give out that type of guidance, but says it made an exception due to unusual circumstances. This is, of course, referring to the ban of former President Donald Trump from the Twitter platform. On the earnings call, CEO Jack Dorsey saying, quote, we are a platform that is obviously much larger than any one topic or any one account. For more insights, let's bring in Richard Kramer, managing partner and senior analyst at Arate Research. Uh, Richard, the, the results from Twitter, yes, maybe were disappointing in some regards, but there's a reason why the shares have been so high as of late. Take us through what, what investors are, are, are trying to pile into with regard to the Twitter story. Well, I think uh, the first point to to make is that Twitter's clearly losing market share in what's a very buoyant digital ad market. And they can point to 31% growth, uh, but actually Snap and Pins added more in absolute revenue and had far faster growth rates this last quarter. And indeed, Facebook added uh, $7 billion of sales, which is uh, twice Twitter's annual sales base in a single quarter. And then, as you noted, the user growth is slowing, so that... implies that Twitter has to find a different business model. And that's where you have all of this, what I call magical thinking around subscriptions. The idea that uh, they are going to just leap into this subscription market and find uh, a huge conversion ratio among their 100 to 200 million uh, uh, monetizable daily active users. So, so Richard, we're, we're talking about charts that show a 60-some percent gain in Twitter stock over the course of the past 12 months. What -hmm. exactly then are investors missing? You're you're saying that that there's a more tepid and perhaps even bearish case to be made for Twitter, yet the stock keeps going up to the tune of 61 percent in the last 12 months. What exactly do you think investors are getting wrong or that perhaps you're getting wrong about that particular story? Well, I think if you look at the wider tech market, it's clear that you've had multiple, multiple instances of companies that have been materially re-rated on sales estimates that are materially lower 
than they were at the start of the year. And indeed, for the out year is much lower. So you've had a huge inflation in tech valuations across the board. In this respect, you have to look at Twitter's performance relative to, again, companies like Snap, Pins, or others, who are simply performing much better. So again, if you look at their relative market share of investor dollars or investor performance, Twitter hasn't outperformed in that respect. You've, you can find other digital ad players that are doing much better. Now, there has been a huge amount of hype around this subscription business. But again, very few people seem to have thought through the implications of making that move and what it does to their user base, since clearly not everyone will subscribe. And indeed, a company that has had a very poor track record of managing its own technology roadmap is now tasked with a huge number of, of things they're rolling out in 2021 before they've even made a formal announcement about subscriptions. So, so Richard, I mean, CEO Jack Dorsey addressed it directly during, during their earnings call. The fact that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, prior to Joe Biden, has now been kicked off the platform, taking millions of, of users along with him. Does Twitter recover from that? Is it a better platform now because that they, they don't have Donald Trump on there as part of the ecosystem? Well, the other thing that Jack Dorsey mentioned, probably inadvertently on the conference call, was that Twitter simply cannot do its own content moderation, which is why they've come up with a system to have crowdsourced content moderation. The simple point about Twitter is that it still is a cesspool of, of abuse and vitriol and even taking out uh, President Trump and, and uh, his supporters from that platform won't change that fact because you have anonymous logins, you have bot traffic, and you just have what in many reports would call toxic Twitter, which means it's not necessarily a brand safe platform for a lot of traditional advertisers. The other problem you have with Twitter relative to the other digital ad companies I mentioned is it just doesn't capture a large degree of time spent. People glance at Twitter, but they don't spend the kind of time and engagement they do with the other platforms. All right, Richard Kramer at Arate Research. He does have a $19 price target and a sell rating on Twitter. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts this morning. We appreciate it. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We often talk about commodities like oil and gold and platinum, but have you checked out what's happening with lumber prices lately? Diana Olick has, and she's joining us now with some eye-popping numbers. And Diana, it's staggering what the cost of inputs is, especially lumber, for home builders across the country right now. It really is, Dom. Look, lumber prices took a step back to start the year, but now they are just headed right back through the roof. Take a look. Closing right around $947 yesterday. That's up 113% year over year, up about 10% in just the last week and matching the 52-week high. Experts are telling us it could plow through that by the end of the week. Now, what's doing it? Well, three major factors. First, Increased demand for single-family housing has been much stronger than expected, and that has the builders busy. Single-family housing starts up 30% year-over-year in December, according to the U.S. Census. Second, remodeling. The pandemic has everyone at home, and all that money we used to spend on going out and traveling, we're now spending on expanding and improving our indoor and outdoor spaces. Several indicators of builder sentiment and expectations for remodeling this year are high and gaining. And finally, rock-bottom interest rates. They're encouraging new home construction and fueling demand to buy new homes. And I want to throw in one other factor mentioned to me by Domain Timber Advisors. Durable goods are continuing to increase as individuals are buying large appliances and furniture. This is all helping juice lumber prices because a lot of these items are shipped on wooden pallets. 
All right. So what does all this mean for the housing market? Well, the NAHB said that the spike in lumber prices last year added over $16,000 to the cost of a newly built home for consumers. Builder confidence in January actually fell with the spike in lumber prices cited as the biggest negative that they now face, Dom. So, Diana, I mean, given these higher prices now for, for new construction projects, do you expect that buyers will be pulling back and sticking to more existing homes because of that, because of the surge in lumber prices, because it costs just so much more to build a new house? You know, they might want to because the price premium for a newly built home is large as it is, as it stands. But the problem on the existing side is prices are overheated there. And a lot of people are looking at this very hot market saying, do I want to buy an existing home at the top of the market? Am I catching a falling knife at some point? Plus, there's so little supply on the existing side. Buyers are looking at new construction a lot more because they want those amenities. They want the high tech. They want new construction because they don't have to fix it up. And that's a cost savings there. So I don't actually think they're going to pull away from the new home market if they can afford it. And that's the question. Only if they can. Of course, it's a supply issue as well. Uh, Anecdotally, Diana, I've been getting so many postcards. We all get them in the mail, right? If you're a homeowner asking you if you want to sell your (laughs) home by real estate. I know what you're talking. Yeah, exactly. So thank you very much, Diana Olick, for that story on lumber prices. Again, a doubling more so in the last year for those prices. Well, no national anthem, a pancake name change and French lunches al desco. Frank Holland is here with more on today's top trending stories. Frank. Hey, good morning again, Dom. I didn't know you parlez-vous français. All right, we're going to start with uh, some NBA news. Mark Cuban says he told his NBA team, the Dallas Mavericks, he told them not to play the national anthem before home games. That decision has been in place since November, and the anthem has not been played before any of the Mavericks games this season. As of Monday, Dallas has become one of the 11 teams to start allowing a limited crowd in the stands. And PepsiCo and Quaker Oats announcing they will be rebranding their Aunt Jemima pancake products to the Pearl Milling Company. The announcement comes after some backlash against what many saw as an outdated and even racist stereotype. Pearl milling was the technique used back in 1889 to create what became the iconic self-raising pancake mix. And employees in France will soon be allowed to eat at their desks at work. Currently, the French Labor Code actually prohibits businesses from allowing employees to eat meals in areas that are dedicated to work. But the labor minister will be making the changes as part of new COVID restrictions as employees return to the office. Now, it could signal a change for a country with a very strong work-life balance, with one French woman telling The New York Times the amendment is, quote, a catastrophe. So, Dom, you sit actually in like the VIP section of CNBC. So I don't know where you eat, but I sit upstairs. Me and Picker, we just eat at our desk all the time. So it's kind of I didn't even know there was countries where you couldn't do that. I think it's all relative, right? Because that upstairs area seems to be the more exclusive one, right? That's where you guys kind of hang out. It's more socially <laughs> distant and everything else. The reason why viewers, listeners, if you're if you're, if you're wondering, what, wondering what Frank is talking about, we do have a very socially distanced office here. But many of us, yes, yes for ages now, have been eating at our desks and it's a big thing for Americans in general. So I'm not sure about France, why they took so long to do that. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting development there. And of course, the the change in the pancake mix name, obviously a lot of backlash, as we said in this story, Um, and just the image itself outdated. But I think it's still a very popular product. So we have to see how consumers respond to simply a name change because the packaging in general looks the same. It's one of my daughter's favorite things about breakfast, Aunt Jemima syrup. We'll see if she notices a change there. Probably not. Just just, just don't change Mrs. Butterworth's. That's the that's the big thing. Frank Frank Holland, thank you very much for that. 
Well, still on deck for the show. Stocks trading near record highs. We'll get you ready for the day ahead. And if you have not already done so, subscribe, please, to our new podcast, Worldwide Exchange, every day in audio format. If you miss us here live on air, check us out on Apple or Spotify or whatever podcast app you choose. Worldwide Exchange is back after this big break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Stocks looking to resume their winning streak after the Dow snapped its and S&P as well. Did take a pause on some gains yesterday. And your next guest says more gains may still be ahead. He's Keith Lerner, Chief Market Strategist at Truist SunTrust Advisory Services. Keith, thank you very much for joining us here. Are you scared? Is it a bubble right now? Are valuations so elevated that you're a little scared about what's ahead? First of all, Dom, great to be back with you. Um, to answer your question directly, no, we're not scared. We, we definitely see some pockets of froth. Some areas of the market are detached from fundamentals, no question. But overall, from a broader standpoint, we do not see a bubble. In fact, I think what's really um, not, not discussed enough is the, the valuations for the S&P 500. They're elevated, but they peaked back in June of last year. They've been moving sideways since then. The, the, the 25% gain we've seen since June have been earnings-driven, and we continue to think that the earnings side of this market remains underappreciated. On the other side of this pandemic, companies are coming out leaner, meaner than ever, and we actually saw a 2020 end with cash flow margins at a record level, which is just amazing. So, Keith, why is it that on my social media, my Twitter feeds and everything else, I see so many people talking about the fact that markets are overly inflated, there's bubbles everywhere, that this is froth, this will all end badly. What is it that they are seeing? Why do people say that valuations are so elevated if you're putting things in historical perspective and saying maybe they're not? Well, they, I think by any historical measure, valuations are elevated. I would say for the, the broader market, the S&P 500 specifically, I think you can justify somewhat higher earn, uh, valuations based on lower interest rates but also the change in sector composition is a lot more towards tech and growth relative to history as well. You have much easier access to the market than ever, cheaper access as well. And on a forward basis, as we look forward, the reason why valuations still look even more elevated than we think they are is because earnings continue to move forward. And we think earnings will continue to snap back stronger than the, the consensus. And we're already seeing this. This earnings season is, is epic, really. When we came, uh, sorry, at the end of last year in December, for this, uh, for the fourth quarter, analysts were expecting a negative 12% earnings quarter. Currently, we're actually now positive. So think about that. The, for, the fourth quarter that we just ended will now be above earnings from the year before, which was the last period before the pandemic. How much of that, Keith, is really revenue growth as opposed to effective? cost management? Because some say that there is a difference and a notable one between driving earnings growth because the business is getting better as opposed to driving earnings growth because you're slashing jobs or you're cutting costs everywhere. Well, it's both. And what's interesting in this, uh, this earnings reporting season, the, the revenue beat rate is about 78%, which is on track for a record. So it's, it's, it's companies becoming leaner and meaner but also the sales side. And if you think about it, there's a high correlation between economic growth and sales revenue. We think economic growth in the U.S. this year will be the strongest since 1984. So think about that. More sales coming through with those uh, better GDP numbers flowing to the bottom line. But I also want to just uh, you know, take a step back. 
We're positive on the market, but we certainly think we're moving to the next phase of the of the bull market after that initial snapback, which means um, much more moderate gains, some choppy waters, similar to what we saw in 2004 coming out of that bottom and 2010 as well. But we think it's going to be another solid year for the equity market, and we're already on, on a good pace for that. What types of companies, sectors, industries are the ones that actually do better in that next leg of the bull market, the choppy type one that you may be referring to after we saw the bounce off the lows? Is it still big cap tech? Is it energy? That's been the theme for the last few months now. Yeah, listen, you know, big cap tech, I think, is held in there really well. I think on the margin where we see more value is something like the financials. Financials are still trading at about a 40% discount to the overall market. We're seeing earning trends move up. We're seeing the, the yield curve at the steepest level in, in over a year. So I think, um, I think financials is a good spot, uh, specifically the regionals. And we also still like some of the, the global industrials and also the materials, which should benefit from a continuation of the, of the uh, global um, GDP recovery. What's also notable in the U.S., we continue to see GDP estimates revise higher, which is unlike what we're seeing in other parts of the globe, like, uh, like Europe, for example. Now, Keith, have you had to change your investing strategy type methodology, tracking methodology for things like cannabis stocks, for things like cryptocurrencies? Yeah, listen, I think those are some of the areas that are more speculative. We're really focused on the areas where we can really dial in on where the fundamentals are, where the earning strength is and so forth. So that's really where we're more focused with our investment strategy still. And then what before we let you go, what what's the thing that scares you the most about what's happening with the market right now? Well, no, I, I think at some point this year, it could be where we have all this fiscal stimulus and more fiscal stimulus coming through after we've had so much fiscal stimulus that things can overheat. I don't think that's a this month uh, concern, but I, I do suspect later in the year, as those economic numbers start to really accelerate, the market will start to think, think about, OK, when is the Fed going to start pulling back? And that will inject some volatility into the market. Again, not a today story, but something to think about as we move later into the year. All right. Keith Lerner, Truist SunTrust Advisory. Thank you very much. Always great to get your thoughts, sir. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you. All right. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. You can see there the markets are going to take an uptick at the opening bell. The Dow implied higher by almost 100 points at this stage. The S&P by 12. The Nasdaq 60 points. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.